Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Nefesh podcast. This is episode 59, and I am glad that you are listening in and are with us this week. You know, I've been uh, teaching some courses on American history, and I'm drawn to just the movements that have taken place, not only in American history, but, but throughout society. Uh, so grateful for that opportunity to really study the cause and effect relationships of life. Somebody asked me the other day why I pursued a history degree. They didn't really know my background in ministry um, and pastoring. And so I, I said, well, you know, it, it came down to, you know, a couple of de- degrees trying to decide on, you know, what to do next or, or what degree to add to my, to my, my education. And, um, you know, it came down to a simple one. What, what type of teachers are they looking for? But I said, I've always loved history and I, I love understanding how things work, how we came to be, why we are the way we are. And, and history is so much about cause and effect. And it shows the relationships between uh, the, the cause or, or the, the starting point of something and the effects of something. And history helps us to understand why we are where we are, why we're doing what we're doing, what events from the past led to where we are now. We really can't understand our present without understanding our past. And so um, history has just been such an amazing opportunity for me to explore Christianity, theology, ministry, people, and an understanding of the world that God has given us and how how humans have interacted with that world throughout history, throughout our lives, and and helps us to see where we've gotten to today. Well, we are back into what feels like campaign mode and campaign season, even though in the United States our presidential elections are not for another year. Um, People, typically you have to start campaigning three or four years, if not even more, out as far as building your campaign for the presidency way, way, way uh, before in order to get support, in order to get funding. Um, it's such a mass, th- massive thing. It's a massive undertaking. And we've already got, you know, um, uh, interviews going on. We've got debates going on. We've got people already forming sides. And two of the main candidates that are, that seem to be in the running for presidency is, of course, the current president, Joe Biden, and then, uh, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, uh, Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, um, despite his several indictments and uh, concerns about his involvement in the January 6th insurrection that took place in 2022. Um, and so there's already, you know, a lot of just you're hearing, I'm hearing a lot of you know news and other things about this election. and. And uh, if you are in the United States and if you pay attention to these types of things, it may give you a little anxiety, whichever way you're leaning, whichever party you're voting for. I know it certainly does for me, despite my disillusionment with politics and, and um, just how, how difficult it has been and, and uh, the various choices that, that voters have made, it really does, I think, cause some concern and and 
probably rightly so, just in general. Again, whichever side you're you're for and voting for. Um, but I want to I want to zero in uh, in this episode talking about the idea of populism and Trump, Donald Trump, and that how it impacts or how we understand its impact on our spiritual formation and our soul and understanding it, it, that word populism may not be understood uh, unless you're really involved in politics. I know I didn't understand it and I didn't really use it. Um, I don't, I sometimes use words that I don't really know the meaning, but I just assume that I've understood the meaning of the word. Um, but I definitely haven't used that, this word populism before, uh, because it just wasn't on my radar. But I've, as I've begun to really research it and see its use, um, it, it is something that goes back. In fact, uh, an author for San Francisco State University, Charles Postel, describes the early, what would have been the original American populism or, or the People's Party way back in 1876. Um, and it, it was around from about 1876 to 1896 that was a really big movement and time. And if you know anything about US history, that's about uh, 11 years after the Civil War. The Civil War was, the, was an, a huge undertaking in the United States for five years, um, uh, four, four years, America was at war with itself and it was a huge, it was a huge undertaking. In fact, um, there were 620,000 recorded deaths in that war and it was the most that America had or would ever see uh, and which would include all of the wars prior to that and then all of the wars after that, or at least up through World War II, which was surprising to me when I learned that. I thought a lot more um, Americans had been killed in World War I and World War II, but there were more people, more men and, and some women killed in the Civil War than there were in all the previous wars for America before and up through, I believe, at least World War II. I don't know that that includes Korea or Vietnam, but that's a lot of lives lost. And the Civil War was such a dark period. And then after that, you've got what are known as the Reconstruction years. And Reconstruction was all about rebuilding the South because it had been so decimated as a result of the war, but it was also an opportunity to figure out what they were going to do with all of these almost four million former slaves who were now free based upon the 13th Amendment and emancipation, which was just, just again, allowing uh, the abolishment of slavery. And it was a difficult period, and you have a lot of hostilities there. You still really do have racism in the South and, there, and an unwillingness to incorporate former slaves into society in an unwillingness to give them land, to give them jobs, to give them opportunities. The whole plantation system was demolished. And so these white plantation owners and southerners, they're figuring out uh, how to restore their economy. Their economy is crushed. So it's, it's all about rebuilding after the Civil War. And then it's also about figuring out where to put four million people who in a good way have been displaced because they're no longer slaves, but the society is not necessarily seeing them as equal. 
In fact, racism was both a northern and southern issue. It, the South was built off of racism, off of free labor. It, the only way the plantations and the plantation owners were able to create that much wealth and that economy was, was on free labor. And so you, but you've got racism both in the North and the South. Really nobody uh, is, is wanting, oh, very few people, you've got a few who are going out of their way to try to figure out where to incorporate them, but not a lot. And so it is about rebuilding America. It's about bringing, how do we bring these, these uh, former Confederate states in the South back into the Union? Um, how do we know that they're going to be loyal and not try to cause problems? Do we just forgive their debt, forgive their, what was seen as treason, you know, um, all of that. And so it's, it's a really turbulent time, but it's, there are good opportunities happening. Former slaves, black people are getting involved into politics. They are beginning to own their own land. They're migrating in some, some ways to the north or to the west. Um, and so though it's difficult, it, there is progress. And what happens after that is is kind of a baffling period where in in some ways society regresses. And definitely in the South, there is a regression. The South manages to kind of reclaim its independence. It it's still a part of the United States, but it it sees a regression back into racism policies and we enter a period known as segregation where black people are um, really restricted in what they can do and where they can work and if they can vote and so it it pulls black people back into a form of subjugation not quite slavery but a form of subjugation and the south really continues to struggle to adapt to the, the way society has changed. But surprisingly, it's also in that, that period from 1876 to 1896 and even up to 1900, it's, it's a huge time of progress in the country. It's a huge time of what's known as industrialization. This is around the time, this is you know, referred to as the industrial age where machines are able to do and replace. So let's say you've got 20 workers in a field, a machine could go in there and do what 20 workers could do and faster. And so instead of people doing manual labor, you now need people managing these machines who are doing the labor. And you're, you have the railroads being built and you have, um, you know, various machines replacing a lot of travel, uh, improvements in, in travel by sea, um, and again, machines that are, that are increasing production. It's a significant time period and a significant period of wealth and growth in the United States, but not all parts. In the South, you may have a few wealthy people, but you largely have poor, both black and white. Prior to the Civil War, you had a few plantation owners who had a lot of wealth, and then you still have the average white person or even poor Southerner who doesn't have a lot. Th this was a period when wealth was increasing, but it was only increasing in the hands of, or was largely increasing in the hands of those who already had it. So wealth is increasing, wealth is um, 
the government is growing. It, in fact, it grew a huge amount after, during and after the Civil War as a lot of things became federalized as opposed to being left up to individual states. So it's a huge time of expansion and wealth and opportunity for some. And this speaks to one of the, the myths or the lesser understood concepts within American history. Uh, one of the things that I've heard people say over the years is that the problem with the American dream of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, property, all of that, that the problem with that is that everybody wants it. And it, it, it's a problem because there are, not everybody can reach it for a variety of reasons. And we see that especially around this time. Now, I think we have made tremendous strides in the 20th and the 21st century. I think more and more people in the United States have access to education, to upward mobility, the idea that you can move from poverty to a state of, of some type of financial success. There is There are more opportunities, period. You, you can't deny that. Some would argue that there still not, are not enough, that there are still barriers to that pursuit of the American dream. There's still, there are still barriers to be able to move from poverty to, to wealth. But there were many, many barriers that are undeniable back in the 1800s. It was, you're, you're just developing uh, public schools and public education. So if you didn't have access, if you weren't wealthy, you didn't have access to education. And one of the things that comes out of this, which is really cool, is that uh, former slaves during Reconstruction, they really begin, they, they get like, they get on it. They get after it. They start building schools for themselves. They start building uh, economic opportunities and businesses. And they, they really reflect their own agency, their own free will. And they start, they start movements. And public education, uh, one of the factors that really promotes public education for all is, is what uh, former slaves, black people, are doing in the South for themselves to be able to create upward mobility, education, and understanding and learning. They've not been able to barely to read or write. They've not had any education. Uh, very little, unless they're, they're uh, uh, unless somehow they had access to it, or small groups were were teaching each other. But they, their commitment to education and their commitment to being able to, now that they were free, pursue a free life, they they really start a movement there. So, prior to this time, you don't have public education. You just begin to see public education come on the scenes and and people be able to go to school. But you also have the barriers of this was a time when because there is such a demand for workers in the industrial fields and because so many people are still very, very poor or living in poverty, you have not just the men who are working in, in, um, in machines and industry, you have women and you have children. And there are so many accounts and reports of children losing their lives or getting harmed or injured because they're going to work with their moms, with their, or maybe not even with their moms or dads, maybe outside. Uh, they're maybe sent away to, to uh, another factory where they live and work, and they've got to send money back home 
because there's no money. And so you've got, even though education is starting to move throughout the United States, there are people who still don't have access to it because they've got to work, because there's no money, because there's no access to anything outside of the home as far as help, as far as uh, there are no there are no resources beyond maybe a local church that can help. The government was not yet involved in things like social security or welfare or anything else. And so very, there's very little access to education and then again to that upward mobility. So you're working just to keep yourself from starving. You don't have education or skills and abilities beyond the job the the work hours are long this was during the time when there weren't any restrictions on how long you could work you could be working 24 hours a day uh, well not 24 they probably would do something more like 20 hours a day six days a week or seven days a week there weren't limits and each employer could determine what they wanted to pay you and because there was such demand at times, you would take the job, even if it was so very small, because you knew that 10 other people wanted that job. And so it was a really, really dark time. In fact, um, one Pentecostal scholar, Vincent Sinyan, he describes the period after the Civil War, and that leads us up to the Pentecostal movement, the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. This, this period after the Civil War was a very dark time in American history. Spiritually, it's, it's a dark time. Uh, Vincent Sinyan, he gives a, a statistic. I, I'm going to say it's like in the teens, maybe like 15 or 16 percent of society after the Civil War were members of a local church. They, they either didn't go to church, or if they did go to church, it was like you know Christmas or Easter. They weren't involved, probably because they were having to work and just survive. There, there was, there, again, especially uh, uh, church historians or Pentecostal scholars would describe that time as a very dark, spiritually time, depressing time in American society. And we can see that in, again, post-Civil War, post-Reconstruction, and especially as society in the South regresses and pushes former slaves and black people back down into some type of subjugation, that there is, whether intentionally or unintentionally, a desire to keep people down. I really think of it as, I, I do think there were intentional movements towards that. There's, there's no doubt uh, that racism was still prevalent. There's no doubt that, that there were movements to keep, for example, black people still subjugated. That's, that's unquestionable at this point. But I also think that America was moving so fast. 1876 is just about 100 years after the country declared independence or the colonies de declared independence and started this, um, what, what early founding fathers have described, this great experiment, this democratic republic. And it's still new. And they've just gone through a civil war and they've uh, just 100 years ago declared independence. They're still figuring stuff out. And they're going through an internal struggle with, with whether or not slaves are actually people and whether or not it's moral to, it was legal, whether or not it was moral to subjugate them. 
And so you've got, I think America was just moving so fast. The train was figuratively moving so fast, you couldn't hardly keep up. And if you weren't on the train when it was moving, you had a hard time getting on the train and keeping up with it. America, and still today, is just, it's like a juggernaut. It is moving so quickly that you've got to try to f try to get on the train. And again, if you haven't gotten on the train through generations of wealth or, or opportunities, the struggle to then get on the train can be challenging. And so I think it was just moving at such a quick paced, uh, pace. And within the American society, there's this constant struggle between government involvement and what is described as overreach or state independent states rights and individual liberties and where that balances we the united states struggles with that constantly and each president or candidate has their point of view on how much the government should be involved uh, and how much should be left to the states and how much uh, individual rights a person should have. I mean, that's, that is the essence of every presidential campaign. That is the essence of their, what's considered their platform or their ideology. How much power should the government have? How much power should each individual have? How much power should each state, state have? We are a unique society that has all of these different competing interests while at the same time attempting to decide what is moral and how we, for example, care for others, care for the poor. Um, and so it's a constant challenge. Well, because of all of these challenges and because of really the challenges in the labor, um, uh, just in the labor force, the workforce, as people are trying to work to feed themselves and their family, but they're not, they're trying not to get injured or die. They're trying to survive. And so they begin to push for, and this wasn't new. There had been strikes and, and other types of employee strikes or walk-offs or whatever prior to this time. This, but this begins a, a movement during this time where labor workers or, or different parties, even farmers around this time, are beginning to unite and demand reform and demand rights. And so the populist movement as a broad picture or example is, is attempting to fight for the rights of the average person. And in this particular movement in 1876 and over the next 20 years in history, you have various labor workers, movements, parties coming together to demand some type of improvement in labor situations, to demand better working environments. Again, there are so many accounts of, of unsafe working conditions, buildings catching on fire, buildings collapsing, children getting injured, children dying, um, working 20 hours a day for very little. And so a push towards, towards demanding better compensation, a push towards cooperating more with one another, a push even towards unions and union building and demanding, demanding better wages and better pay. And and so it begins to it begins to spread, 
and it does have an effect. And there's, there's obviously debate, and even today, debate over how much effect it does have, and, and, and we won't get into that, but that's, that's the origin of it. It was a movement designed to help the average person, the people, the, each person in their struggle to survive and to find work and to, to um, just, just be able to live. And, and the battle in that sense, the battle would have been against wealthy uh, landowners, wealthy employers, uh, not necessarily the government, but maybe the government, but the government wasn't as involved back then, so it was really more against, it was really more against wealthy people, wealthy landowners, wealthy uh, employers who were continuing to get more and more wealth while the average person was not seeing any of that wealth. They were not able to move up in this type of upward, again, this this upward mobility. It was fighting for the average person. So what, what does that have to do with Trump today and populism today? Well, Trump has been described, and again, this was way back in the 2016 election when he was uh, going up against Hillary Clinton. He was described as a populist, and it was, wasn't a term that I was really familiar with at that time. I thought, um, I, I just didn't understand what it meant. But Trump had a way, former President Trump had a way back then, and it was described by the uh, activist and documentarian M M Michael Moore, who did a lot of controversial documentaries, things like Fahrenheit 9-11 about uh, the Iraqi war and, and uh, uh, September 11th and all that happened, and he did other, other uh, films. But he, I, he went on, and I'm hearing this third, third hand, somebody, a friend of mine told me about it, but I guess he went on a news show. And this was after, uh, either before or after Trump won, but it was as Trump was building momentum, I think. And Michael Moore went on this news show and he said, I can see what's going on. I can see why uh, Trump is building in momentum and, and popularity. And he, he referenced the hat that Trump was wearing. And at that time, it was Make America Great Again. And he was, Trump was campaigning in Michigan. And you know, Trump, or, or Michael Moore said, I'm, I'm from the working class. I, I'm from that society where you know, wearing a hat, it, it reflected your identification with what are known as blue collar workers, those who are in the labor force or work with their hands. Everybody wears hats, you know, where, where he was from, Michael Moore, in that, in that type of town. I don't, can't remember if he's from Michigan, but in that type of area or that type of town, um, you were, you could, I, you know, you identified with the working class. You identified with the average person, with, again, with labor or with blue-collar workers, and signified by this hat, or by hat wearing, wearing hats about whatever it might be, but you, you know, you, you're casual, you're the, you're the worker who works with his hands or her hands and, and you know, you wear, the, you wear hats and jeans and boots and whatever it is and you're just, that's the reflection of, of your class, I guess, in society. And so Michael Moore was saying that when Donald Trump started putting on that hat and when he started using language that, that was 
appealing to the average person. And again, I can't remember if this was before or after the election, but Michael Moore said it's like he, he got it. He understood that either Trump would win or why Trump had won. And it was because it was because Trump appealed to the average person or more particularly to the white man or woman who felt like they had been left behind in the years when President Obama was in charge. The white male or female worker who was just trying to make a living for their family, who was just trying to survive, who was feeling overtaxed, who, who was feeling like their moral values were getting trampled on, who, who felt like Trump was speaking to them. And one of the things that is, that Trump has expressed throughout his presidency, prior to his presidency, and now that he's no longer president, but is, you know, uh, trying to win again, he is definitely, or he says that he's anti-establishment and anti-elitist. So he talks very plain, very plainly, and, and has this very common way of communicating. Now, you can see this even if you go back and look at uh, George W. Bush when he ran for president against Al Gore, who, who was more of a, I think people described Al Gore as being a little bit more wooden, a little bit more intellectual, a little bit more um, uh, less charming and folksy. George W. Bush, however, was very folksy. He had his, his Southern charm and his Southern accent, and he talked plainly and sometimes, you know, seemed to make up words or couldn't pronounce words very well. Um, you always, when I would be watching him, I would always be kind of waiting to see what, where his thought process would go or what word he would say and, and use and all of that. Um, but there's something similar with that, that that there's something appealing to the average person who may not have uh, a huge education or a lot of money, that the appeal again to the average person talking plainly and even willing, as Trump has expressed, even willing to fight against uh, the establishment. Trump does not come from the establishment. He, he, um, he wasn't in political office before he became president. He was very human and very, um, a lot of his mistakes and errors and, and uh, the things that he had done wrong were very open and had been expressed. And, um, and, and there was, it was as if that didn't matter. And again, his appeal towards the anti-establishment, the anti-elite, and you're considered an elitist if you have a, a big education. So I don't know if people would consider me an elitist, um, maybe until they saw me and, and saw what I drive and saw how I dressed. And, and uh, you know, I may have a lot of degrees, but I don't know that I would consider myself an elitist. And I certainly don't have a lot of money. But um, you, you are considered elitist if you have a big education, if you have a lot of education, if you have a lot of money if you're tied to social and community groups, if you come from generational wealth, if you, uh, you know, whatever, there's, there's a few different groups that you're considered a part of that group. And so many Americans are not part of that group or so many Americans felt like they had been left behind by government. 
And despite the fact that, and this was, this was something that was unique when President Trump was in office, he was president of the country and president of the United States, but it seemed at times as if he was anti-government and as if he didn't get along with, with even members of his own cabinet and members of his own party. And again, to people who are the average person who feel like the government is to blame for their problems or feel like uh, the establishment or the elites, the educated, are to blame for their problems or that... Um, that that those in power have taken away their moral their moral values and rights and have trampled on their freedoms. There is great appeal to somebody like Donald Trump. He seems to be fighting for the little man. Now, you know, not I guess that is in spite of the fact that he's like a millionaire billionaire. Um, but that's okay because he's declared bankruptcy so many times and. And again, he, he's, he really wants no regulations on, on wealth and government. And so maybe that makes him okay. Maybe that makes, um, maybe that makes him a little bit more accessible, but, or at least he's better than, than the others who are elitist, who come from uh, government institutions and anti-establishment. Trump, then and now, to some people, seems to be speaking up for them as individuals, as people who feel like they have been left behind. Workers, blue collar workers, people just fighting for their rights, for what they believe to be a trampling on their rights, their values, their ability to create wealth, their ability to move up. He's, Trump seems to be speaking, this is why he was given this populist title, or this populist, not title, but that he's a populist president that he is appealing to that language and he seems to be speaking plainly to each person. So what does that have to do with our spiritual formation and our soul? One of the things that I've learned as I've studied history is that history more often than not has been told from the vantage point of those in power or those with wealth those who are educated, those who can read and write, those who have the ability to have their voices heard. Which means there have been many, many, many people throughout history who've not been able to share their story, their point of view, their experiences. There are so many people from throughout history, regardless of color, regardless of uh, even in wealthy societies, if you were female, you didn't have much agency or your voice was not heard. There is, there is an understanding of how much history has not always reflected the voice or the point of view of those who were poor, who were marginalized, who were minorities, who were subjugated, children, women, and even, it didn't matter your gender, you could be male, but if you were poor, you had no voice. That this is, while there is still racism and there are still very 
very significant issues with gender, race, and, and, and many things, what, what I have seen is that it's a human condition, a human problem, that that fallen, broken part of us, whatever our gender, whatever our ethnicity, whatever our wealth, there is a part of us that, that wants to subjugate or control or minimize others in order to have what we want. And that will perpetuate and be perpetuated throughout history. That it's a, it's a sinful, it's a fallen and broken condition that we see back in Genesis chapters 3 and 4 and beyond. That it's something that Paul talks about in the New Testament. And Jesus reflects that though you are poor, you are not, well, it was, it was the opposite in the New Testament and, the, and in the Bible. If you were wealthy, you were thought to be moral. And if you were poor, you were thought to be immoral as having done something wrong. That wealth was a sign of God's blessing. But Jesus turns that on its head and he says, blessed are the poor. That they too have access to the kingdom of God. That just because you are poor does not mean that you are immoral, nor does it mean that you are moral. And today, just because you are poor does not mean that you are any more moral than somebody else, nor does it mean you are any less of a human. That the human condition, the human, the fallen human nature that we struggle with wants to keep others down while we succeed. And so throughout history, there has been everything from genocide, infanticide, um, there has been ageism, sexism, racism. There has been um, euthanasia. There, there has been everything on all different classes of people from all different, different situations. The Bolshevik Revolution in 1919, 1919-2021 uh, in Russia that overthrew and killed the king and his family in a bloody bloody massacre felt entitled to do that felt that they had a right to kill the king and his children and his wife because they had been left behind and they were indeed starving people in 18th or 19th century russia and 20th century russia early on they were struggling but in that struggle in order to show that they were no longer going to be beaten down by, by the proletariat, or rather by the, by the bourgeoisie, by, the, by those who had power, by the elitists, by the wealthy, that they were going to kill them, and they did. That it doesn't matter your wealth or your gender or your ethnicity as far as your broken and fallen humanity. That none of those things determine either your value or your character and, and morality. That all of us are in need of a savior and redemption and restoration and healing. All of us, whatever our class situation, are in need of transformation. And yet, Jesus, when he came, 
he spoke to, he healed, he delivered, he called, he transformed the poor, the women, the children, the uneducated, and even some, some who were elite, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Anyone who wanted to hear and receive his message of restoration to God, he ministered to. Jesus is the greatest example of a true and healthy populist message ever. And he condemned the religious elite, not because they were religious and had power, but because they didn't help those without power. He didn't condemn them for being rich. He condemned them for not helping the poor. He didn't condemn those with power for having power. He condemned them for not helping the poor, those without power, those who had nothing, those who were not able to express and, and fully illustrate their agency and their voice. He came to give a voice to the voiceless, power to the powerless, hope to the hopeless. Jesus saw everybody. He saw the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, who wanted to slip in and out of the crowd and just be healed and go on her way. He saw her. He saw little Zacchaeus up in a tree trying to see Jesus. He saw him. The gospel within Christianity is for everybody. It is for the poor, the lowly, the hurt, the broken. And Jesus in the New Testament is the best example of speaking to those average people whom society had left behind. The religious leaders had left behind the poor, the hurting, the widows, the orphans. Society had left behind the marginalized, the wounded, the, the, uh, those with illnesses and diseases. They had left them behind. Nobody was caring for the poor, the widows, and those who had nothing, despite the fact that they were instructed to do so in the Levitical laws. And so Jesus came to those who were marginalized, the average person and the subhuman person, people who had, were being treated as subhumans. He came to those. The true original populist message that Jesus shared, it was anti-elite but not because they were elite. It was anti-establishment, but not, but not because they were establishment. It was anti because they were not do anything, doing anything to help those who had nothing. And in fact, were putting more and more burdens on those who had nothing. Too many times throughout society, throughout history, there are, there are people who go without being seen or heard or understood or cared for. There are still too many people in our society who are broken, who are left behind, who need help, 
who need to be seen and heard and understood. And that is the message of the gospel, that all people are restored to redemption in God, to redemption with God. It is not that wealth or power or education are bad. It is what are we doing with those things when we have them? How are we ensuring that we are caring for the people around us and loving our neighbor as ourself? Unfortunately, government cannot fix the human soul and the condition of the human soul. Government can get in the way of that by overreaching and by underreaching, by not doing enough, by doing too much. Government can get in the way by, by not having the best leaders in office. But ultimately, it's up to you and I to care for, care for those who are not seen and heard and understood. You know, I think it's something as small as looking people in the eye, whether they're homeless or they're the president of the United States, calling them by their name, acknowledging their existence, smiling at them, finding ways to care for them, whatever that might be. Imagine what we could do if we treated those people around us as if they were real people and they mattered, that they were human, that we acknowledged them by our eye contact, by our smile, by calling them by name, by recognizing them. Imagine what we could do. And imagine where that could lead as we build relationships and connect with people for them. Our souls were meant to be connected to God. Our souls were meant to be connected to God and others and the transformation of our souls into Christ's likeness that comes with the care, the nurture, and the reality of community for which we were created. Well, thanks for listening to episode 59 of the Nefesh podcast. I hope that I hope that you've enjoyed this this brief glimpse of of history, and um, we will talk to you next time. <laughs>